Jesus, my stomach. Okay, uh, <clears throat> our mics are hot. Right. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, for my guest, I guess I'll introduce you today. I have uh, my friend and former coworker named Noel. Noel, would you like to introduce yourself or say say a word? Yes, I am Noel. I'm uh, from New Zealand, and I've been living here in Japan for almost uh, eight years. Um, and I currently work at an international elementary school as language coordinator. Yeah. And uh, Noel, in addition to um, being a, a New Zealand expat, do you consider yourself an expat or an immigrant, or do you do you care about the terminology? I don't actually think about the terminology. Okay. Yeah. In addition to being uh, a Kiwi living in Japan, yeah. he um, has also lived in some other parts of the world. Um, yeah. So, how many other countries have you lived in proper? Uh, just a, only just a couple of others. So, uh, Korea for seven and a half years, and uh, Russia was a year, um, and just a number of months in Iceland. Mm. Yeah. You go back to uh, Russia and sort of for former Soviet bloc countries pretty regularly, right? You, is that a, is that a politically incorrect term now? Should I not say former Soviet bloc countries? No, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> you gave me a look like... Yeah. I think I'm sort of notorious at my job that... Going back to to Russia in particular, people think I'm from Russia. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm it's not. an unusual one for people to visit frequently. Yeah. I mean, especially where we are, I think a lot more people head south. Yeah, I have a a tendency to avoid the heat, yeah. um, as as much as uh, the weather is is good for the most part in in Japan. It's extremely hot for me. And New Zealand doesn't get that hot or, or humid. Um, uh, and knowing people in Russia and, uh, just the climate being a lot cooler and, and less humid means, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit like the Royal family. I just want to sort of move North during the summer. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I could see that. I mean, we, both times, uh, I visited Scandinavia, for example, has been in like late spring or summer and it's, yeah. it's, it's nice. It, it's funny you say that the weather is mostly nice in Japan because I don't, I mean, coming from Southern California, which as the Japanese would say, does not have four seasons. Um, and the Japanese four seasons are a bit much for me. I don't know, like this year, winter wasn't that cold, but the summers I find brutally um, just humid. More than hot, it's the humidity. that. Yeah, it's it can be very, uh, very exhausting. I think, uh, yeah, it's similar in Korea. Obviously, the weather pattern is, is practically the same. Um, and they have a similar expression with, with the country of four seasons. Oh, really? Um, but uh, and in New Zealand, we often say we have four seasons in one day. That's something that, uh, like, for example, the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. They also so it's, say. it's very changeable weather throughout throughout a given day and certainly during a week. Huh. Um, but it's a lot more comfortable and, and you're able to deal with it. Funny that we're talking about weather to start off with. Yeah, it, it is. I was just thinking the same thing. It's like starting off the podcast with small talk about yeah, yeah. The um so the reason i asked you about the countries you lived in was not to discuss their weather patterns but uh <laughs> yeah it was just to um get on the topic of of language and so you're you're also a polyglot i think of the, all the people i've had on so far you probably have the highest overall number of different languages oh, okay that you speak, so yeah yeah 
Um, yeah. So it's not too many compared to Europeans, I suppose. But okay. for English speakers, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, it, the way I imagine it is that the Europeans typically know maybe around the same number, if not more. Okay. Uh, languages. So if if you were to rank them in order of, of your your comfort level speaking them or, or understanding them. Oh. Um, apart from my native language. You can throw it in there. I I, assu- oh, well, I assume that's number one. I, I'm gonna go number one. Yeah. yeah, English number one. Um, I guess it depends on what I'm intending to express, but generally I would say Russian, Korean, Japanese, actually. But so, how does what you want to express affect that ranking? Um, I think in it's partly in the way I've learned the languages and the environment. I I. I grew up, if you, if you like, I experienced them in, in different ways, I suppose, and in, in learning them and at different times of my life. So I feel that my actual ability or comfort level is, is very different. So for Russian, for example, I it makes a lot more sense um, emotionally, if you like, okay. to me. Um, whereas I can I can safely say I still have to think at times about what I want to express in Japanese and Korean somewhere in the middle. Okay. Sorry, I'm going to adjust my chair real quick because I'm I'm not going to be comfortable sitting like this. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. And I have some thoughts immediately. Uh, Granted, I don't know anything about Russian grammar or or how the language functions. So I'm, I'm, there's a lot of just ignorance and assumptions that I'm possibly making, but I'd rather hear what you actually, what the reason is for you. Because my, what I initially guess is that East Asian languages have a lot of extra um, layers to think about in terms of yeah. like social hierarchy and, and level of formality. Yeah. Is that is that what it is? Oh, for that? Uh, yeah, so at least for Korean, I'm very aware of, of the levels of formality. With Japanese, yes, but I think it's still not completely natural a language for me, if I'm, if I'm brutally honest. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, it's interesting. Uh, so, on in that regard, like my mom, but my mom's description of her relationship with like Spanish and in English has always uh, been an interesting marker for me because she describes Spanish as her native language in the sense that it comes out more easily, mm. um, and it and it takes less thought, mm. and uh, it's you know it's it's deeper in there. Yeah, uh, it's, it's closer to the roots, whatever of of her thoughts, I guess. But um, the funny thing is, her English sounds totally native, and no one's aware that she's not a native native English speaker. And she even says that she knows more of the English language than she knows of Spanish. Mm. She left Mexico in elementary school, so um, there's all sorts of Spanish vocabulary she just doesn't know because she stopped at an elementary student's right. um, yeah vocabulary. So I, I want you know when you say that. There's a different, you know, for example, emotional relationship. I can, I can totally understand that. Yeah. So f- for Russian, I originally went there on exchange as a high school student. In fact, I actually finished high school in New Zealand, graduated out, and then um, I did a, a year-long scholarship um, in, in, in Russia outside St. Petersburg. And so there I was living with a family. So it, the approach, although I was studying by myself every day and I had a, a tutor as well at school, um, majority of that time was in a family sort of um, environment, whereas the other two languages have been at specific language schools. Okay. Yeah. I could see that that's very different. Yeah, and so I'm sure you're aware, like the focus is very much in those two other, it's those two schools, um, grammar and building the knowledge very quickly, and it's all a very practical sort of thing. How much prep study had you done in Russian before going to Russia? Oh, I, all I had was a, a Routledge Teach Yourself Russian book. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's it's kind of funny because um, Routledge is a British company. Uh-huh. And uh, and so the accent guide for how to pronounce Russian words, as I remember, was based on British uh, English. And so I didn't wasn't aware of that at the time. And so I just went ahead. And, and so uh, whenever I, I would pronounce um, the basic Russian words that I knew before I before I uh, um, started studying it formally, um, were all based on my accent. So it sounded very very strange to russians it sounded ukrainian <laughs> really yeah so the so new zealand accent is to english as ukrainian is to russian is that yeah something like that <laughs> yeah that's that's interesting so when you say it was based on british english do you mean like they, when, when they would analogize this sound sounds like this sound yeah so it would be something like um the uh yeah in russian the letter it's written as an e mm-hmm. yeah um is is like uh, the eh sound I should say is uh, like eh in seven, whereas in New Zealand we always go seven. Ah, it's very interesting. So then I would take that and go oh instead of saying like nyet, yeah, no, I would just go nyet, you know. Okay. So it would sound a little bit different. Yeah, so it sound kind of funny to Russians. It's interesting though that rather than hearing that as a as like a a, a non native accent, they heard it as Ukrainian. Yeah, and that's an interesting. Well, thing. funnily enough, my host family is uh, Ukrainian Russian. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So maybe some some Ukrainian Russian. Yeah, some influence in there as well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's a bit similar for me, I think, in, in, with Japanese because my first trip to Japan at fourteen was exactly like that. I had I had a little like phrase book mm. that didn't even have any um like it, the whole thing was in romaji there was no hiragana katakana even it was just literally like it would be like uh in the english sentence like i my stomach doesn't feel so good and then just like in romaji like onaka ga itai desu and and some i think even for desu they spelled it without the u to try to like yeah. make you say it more like a Japanese person, and that was all I had. Uh, and then I stayed with a family here as well. So I, but it wasn't for as long as your yeah. your homestay was. But it yeah. does have a big impact because I mean, still to this day, and I eventually just started leaning into it. But even before I did, um, people outside of Kansai would really quickly go like, "Oh, you're you're from Osaka." And, <laughs> and I, my, was it the pitch accent as well? Yeah, and that's that's a funny one because um, I consider myself like pretty aware of Japanese. Like I feel like I understand how it works pretty well. But the way um, the the pitch and rhythm and intonation of it works is probably the thing I'm still the least aware of. Yeah. Like Japanese people will often say, you know, there's like the ame ame thing. Yeah. Um, some of them like ame I, I get, but there's other ones that I'm like I really can't hear the difference. It sounds. Um, there's a on YouTube. There's a guy dogging. Mm-hmm. Do you know him? He's no. uh, I'm not sure where he lives. Maybe he lives in Kyushu. Uh, maybe Oitaken. But he uh, he's a pitch. Um, a pitch accent specialist. Oh, really? I guess. Yeah. In and so he in Japanese. Japanese. Yeah. He's a foreigner. Okay. From the states. Wow. Um, yeah, and and he, he does things on YouTube. Oh, he does. He actually makes a lot of uh, jokes and 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 um, uh, sort of comical relief sort of things for like a minute or two. Mm-hmm. But he also does this pitch accent sort of analysis of Japanese and and teaches it. That's really interesting. I'll have to watch. His name's Dogen. Yeah, Dogen. I'll have yeah. to check him out. Yeah, I'm. The, there's a few that I like, constantly get sort of called out on. Uh, I think <laughs> most of the time, even before I've thrown in like a yane or whatever, like someone will say, "Oh, you're you're you speak Osaka then," but um, my Osaka friends that I that know me very well and hear me talk all the time will get comfortable enough to like point out like that sounded a little Kanto just now, <laughs> and uh, I think the with the way I say majide. 
which is funny because it's a very common thing i think especially in osaka like i don't even now i'm aware of the different ways of saying it but i can't remember which is which or or, mm. which, or i don't even know which one is the one that i naturally say mm. but there's like the majide or like majide like and i i think the second one is more kansai um but for whatever reason when i'm speaking naturally like i don't know which one come by the way for anybody who doesn't know japanese that's like the that's like the are you serious basically and <laughs> for real yeah. uh, in japanese but yeah i intonation stuff so is, is there something akin to that in russian so broadly speaking the accent in russian is much the same it's very standardized across the um across across the country of russia um broadly speaking apart from those who learn it as a second language of course so there's very few dialects or anything oh really that are, that are oh, that's surprising well i think it, it probably comes down to the late um uh migration patterns of spreading out spreading eastwards and um communism <laughs> uh it's sort of government control and standardization of the language um i remember having a conversation with my um russian teacher actually um who since uh, passed away and, and and she was really tough on me but um i admired her <laughs> by the end but she um she asked me why i spoke english incorrectly and i was like and she said, well, you should speak the same as everyone else, like British English is what they learn. Okay. Yeah. And so she was adamant that we, there should be no differences between <laughs> languages. I was like, this is a really strong opinion. Quite surprising. And especially about her, her non-native language. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. And it kind of relates to a topic that uh, my, my last guest who was on here, my, my friend Kevin, uh, we talked a little bit about differing philosophies on like code switching, for example. Yep that um i tend to be on the weirdly conservative side of, of where i feel like if you're going if you're speaking in english you ought to speak in english and if you're speaking in japanese for example you ought to speak in japanese yeah. and i i you know when we worked together at the school and i i was teaching in the junior high school i often would sort of when the students would code switch which is perfectly natural for mm -hmm. bilingual especially especially children yeah. to use whichever word feels more comfortable in that moment from whatever language that they know um i would always kind of tell them you know you may understand like I, I can't even think of an example they would always say but like um they, you know they, they'd mix japanese and english in a sentence i mean you you may understand that and all your classmates may understand that but when you go speak to the average english speaker the average japanese speaker that's not necessarily a language that anyone understands so i'd always try to keep them make them stay in the lane of whatever language even if you're speaking japanese in english class which you shouldn't be doing in english class <laughs> i would at least speak japanese yeah or you know, if you're speaking English, speak English. Um, and I, and I, my friend Kevin was saying that you know he one of his earliest experiences living in Japan was basically always hanging out in the bar of this hotel in Nagasaki, where there was like German engineers, I think, for, for some um, plant that they had there. Yeah. Uh, and then the English teachers, and, and then the Japanese people who hung out there, and they just had, kind of had their own language. Um, and I think, you know, from, from a lot of multilingual communities, code switching becomes part of the identity of yeah, it. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a feature of some international schools, in, including the one where I'm currently employed, yeah. um, for better or worse. But it is, um, yeah, there's a feature. Yeah, but so it's interesting. So that I, I, well, I'm not as extreme as your teacher, your former teacher. I, I, I kind of, there's a part of me that's like, I feel where she's coming from. <laughs> but at the same time, she's totally wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I've never had to think about accent so much. The only thing I really thought about um, the New Zealand accent before 
when I was a kid, when I was growing up, was um, that the TV would speak American. The TV would sound a certain way. Yeah. And the only time you'd really hear a New Zealand accent would be on the news, the local news, uh-huh. or, um, or on the, the few shows that we had, you know. So I wasn't really aware of it. As I said, like I went to the country yeah. with my book in hand and it was, my pronunciation was based on my accent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I quickly corrected that. And, and when I, when I went to Russia, so it was like August, 1997, um, I pushed myself pretty hard. So we had a meeting with our, our regional group of exchange students in December and some students like the German students already knew Russian. The girl from Switzerland already knew Russian and a multitude of other languages, which made me look bad. <laughs> I'd picked up Russian pretty quickly to the point where the other students were kind of surprised. So I was I was happy with that achievement and it was just a matter of working on pronunciation and things after that. So which which skill came to you first? So was that your first uh, foreign language then was Russian? Uh, no, uh, like a lot of people in English speaking countries, I actually, well, perhaps outside the States, I learned French first. Okay. Um, so I did five years of French in, in high school, Really, but the education system for languages is, is not so emphasized Okay, apart from, um, English and, and Maori, our, our, um, uh, native language. We don't have to get into it right this second, but I also <laughs> wanted to talk to you a bit about the role of Maori in, in New Zealand society as okay. well, because I think that's very interesting. It's something that probably a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we, you know, we can come back to that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, French, uh, as I said, for five years, but, um, that was, I think, probably a few periods a week. Uh, yeah, so my ability was okay. And by the end of, by the graduating class, I was the only student still doing French. But I don't count it as one of my languages because it's I just it's somewhere in the back, and I, yeah, I don't don't use it. I can't really can't operate in it. Really, I mean, so there, for example, there's French teachers at the school where you work now. If, yes. If, if there's a conversation happening nearby in French, do you, does it? feel any different than any other ling- foreign language you don't know or it, are you able to pick up some of it or oh uh, yeah i mean there are a large number of similarities to english so sure yeah so uh uh safely i'd say no okay. i wouldn't <laughs> all right okay. but the the interesting thing about french is that learning french learning the grammar uh-huh. at least trying to understand it because it was obviously a whole new concept yeah. I, I I didn't understand English grammar at that point during high school. Yeah. And it was only once I got to um, learning Russian grammar, so it has a case system, uh-huh. um, and having to re- I had to really think about um, English and where English was coming from. And, and the French basis, the French study had helped with that as well. So it was sort of a, I don't know, an auxiliary. Sort of I'm not sure if I'm just not familiar with the term or if it's that I don't speak any languages that have a case system, but what, what is that? Case so system. a case system is so certain languages like Russian um, and and Latin is another famous one, where um, instead of having sort of uh, individual words for a function, so for example the genitive in English mm-hmm. we use of, of or apostrophe s, yeah. for example. So in Russian that would mean changing the ending of the word. Um, so each uh, of the of the the modified word or the modifying word, like, well it can be. Uh, like for example, Noel's hat. Yeah. Sorry, that's where my eyes went. Uh, Noel's hat is that like Noel changes or hat changes? Uh, Noel changes. Oh, okay. Because one would be the subject, which right. is a separate case. Yeah. A nominative, nominative okay. case, and then the other would be in the genitive. Yeah. So that that means the nouns change uh, in kind of doing the similar function to what, like what particles do in Japanese. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, there are some like uh, um, prepositions in, in 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 Russian as well. So in, in Japanese they are postpositions. Right. But yeah. Um, so that has its. Uh, they belong to different cases, but there is also a prepositional case as well in Russian. Okay. Yeah, particularly for uh, location. But yeah. So is it in a sense then it's like the the nouns get inflected or yeah okay well not just nouns but nouns adjectives numbers oh really um yeah and of course like a lot of European languages you have to conjugate the verbs anyway right. depending on the person and, and and number right um and for Russian also verbs conjugate in gender as well oh oh, oh wow even verbs for for, for past past tense. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it was a very, very complicated sure, thing yeah. to learn and sort of get my head around. But it helped me understand English and and that little basis of French there, um, particularly with conjugations, um, was was useful to to learn Russian and then move on to other languages because you can kind of relate it. The thing with cases is what's interesting is word order is a lot freer in Russian than in English. Really, so it doesn't. Although the emphasis, the focus, the what you intend to mean uh -huh. um, changes depending on where you put the words. Right. You have a lot more freedom to of where to put them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, I, this is a very anecdotal, just kind of maybe assumption that I'm making. But I, I have the feeling that word order in English is is probably more one of the most emphasized um, yeah. structures compared to other languages. Yeah. I don't. No other language that I know of cares about it as much as English does. <laughs> That, that I know of, All right? Mm. So, um, let's see. Oh, so you talked about something that, uh, <laughs> sorry, my, 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 my lack of graceful uh, segue there is, <laughs> was, was like a showing, just, yeah, just figuring this stuff out. Um, no, you, you mentioned an experience I think that is, that is extremely common and I think familiar to anyone who has learned a uh, foreign language or, or more than one foreign language. And that is that the first foreign language you learn always sort of teaches you your own language as well yeah. and it teaches you how language itself works you sort of learn how to learn a foreign language in the first one yeah and i think that it, it makes the second third whatever maybe not easier especially if they're not the same but like in my case i had a similar thing where i had studied spanish and i grew up in a, in, you know, a home where spanish was spoken um to an extent uh i studied spanish in school but i never really got mm. I, I never really mastered verb conjugation mm. it just it was the exact kind of learning that as a student I hated. I hated memorizing things just for the sake of memorizing. Um, I always wanted to know like the why or the, the reason. And I think one of the big problems with a lot of European languages is, is that in addition to having the, the conjugation system itself, there's also a ton of um, exceptions to that system, mm. which is one of the things that when I learned Japanese, for example, it felt like like if there was a language that was designed for how my brain worked and how I learned uh, language, Japanese was perfect because once you get the rules, mm. it pretty much almost always follows the rules. There's not a ton of exceptions, especially in the way standard Japanese yeah. is, is spoken. I think that's, that's something very interesting about language for me is the, the, the rules. So I, I said, as I've said to you um, uh, earlier today, like I have a lot of like grammar and reference books and these are the things I like to yeah. read through and I'm fascinated by the rules and the exceptions as well. I think what's interesting is this, um, the rule book, if you like, mirrors uh, the rules for living in a country. Mm. So for the, I've, I've, I've lived here almost eight years and, and, and living in Korea previously, like people would, uh, foreigners at least, um, you know, of course, over the years, people would say that they're frustrated. They don't understand how things are mm. in this country or whatever. Mm. Um, and for me, I've 
for the most part, I think I've had like a pretty easy ride. I've never really struggled. And I'm not saying it's not because of the language, but I understand, I've come to understand that it's just a matter of learning the cultural rules, the societal rules. And once you know this, and in Korea, especially, there's a lot of rules yeah. <laughs> um, in Japan too. Yeah. Um, once, once you know those rules, you can sort of better prepare yourself and you just sort of fit into society a little bit better. So it, it's somewhat similar to the, the grammar, I it's guess. It's a very interesting point that you make there. And I think it, it makes me think of like the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and the, <laughs> and the idea yeah. that, that our thoughts are structured by the, the languages that we speak yeah. or, the, or whatever our first language is. And there's definitely a parallel there. I mean, I think in a sense, um, learning a, the, the dominant language of a country is one of the one of the cultural rules that you learn. Yeah. And if you understand it, there's a lot more situations where something might happen and you might see like people form a bond or someone be offended where you understand exactly why it happened in yeah. a way that maybe someone who doesn't, whether it's the language or some other aspect of the manner, yeah. manner uh, etiquette of the country, um, they might not understand why. Yeah. yeah, I could see that for sure. Yeah. Um, I've had um, one particular conversation I can recall um uh with a a foreigner um she she said for example um she was on the train and this is unrelated to language but she, she was on the train and um no one would give up the seat their their, their seat for the elderly person that was standing mm-hmm. and so back home yeah uh, that would sort of be the done thing right like you would oh, okay oh i see this this older person uh, standing that's I'm a gonna... common one in japan as well yeah. a lot of people from outside of the country complain about right and and so and I, and in in my experience i sort of understood it a little bit differently like i knew that back home we we would feel obliged to do that and i would i would do that mm-hmm. but I, I i felt like here the the rule that I, I feel is true is that you don't necessarily want to embarrass the other person yep. either yeah so I, I felt that, that that was the overriding um uh, rule perhaps for a lot of people of course it might be people they're just you know ignoring it anyway yeah. but like that is an additional uh, consideration and and i felt like that person um that foreigner didn't didn't think about that like and invalidated that in fact sure there's a tendency to for example if, if you're feeling offense or frustration to just latch on to the feeling of frustration and not mm-hmm. look for anything that might complicate your frustration right. right if there's anything that might mitigate it and, and make you stop and go well maybe this isn't as bad as i'm seeing it as being that that tends to be ignored mm. i mean i think that well, one thing we're seeing from like living in, in internet society is that um people very much like to feel offended and outraged like mm. there's a certain aspect of that that, that people um, almost it becomes addictive and i think like you know the cultural frustrations of, of living in a foreign country are part of that i i think i'm sure we've probably even had some of the same conversations with the same people yeah. separately even <laughs> yeah. um about those sorts of things um yeah yeah it's they i i've always heard like in korea and I mean, you can you can maybe verify or or, or um uh, refute this uh but like in Korea, I've heard it's very taboo for, for for well people, young people to sit in the priority seats on a train, even if the train's not that crowded, that, that people will leave the chairs for, you know, the, there's the seats for pregnant women or handicapped mm. people or elderly people. Um, and they're, they're in it pretty much every country. But in Japan, people will just sit in those. If the train's crowded, like anyone will just sit in them. It's a, it's a seat. Mm. And the assumption is that, well, if someone needs it, they'll get up and let them have it but oftentimes that doesn't actually even happen mm. here which is what what you're you're referring to and why i say it's a common situation that gets complained about but i've heard that korean people are it's in korean society it's much more taboo to sit in them to begin with if you're well 
so they often get left empty yeah um which then makes it eliminates the need for any awkward interaction right. if somebody does need them because they're available yeah. um, and i've heard that in korea if you see if you see people sitting in those seats they're japanese <laughs> yeah, I can't speak to the Japanese uh, okay. <laughs> part, but uh, yeah, generally, as I said, like the rules are, are very strict, at least from a West, Western perspective, I would say. Um, and so it, it sort of proves proves my point, I guess. Like once you know that rule, you you know not to break it, yeah. basically. So if if you're not going to break that rule, you can probably live a bit more comfortably. You just stay within in your lane, I guess. No. Um, not always comfortable for every Westerner, of course. Yeah. No. Yeah. And the funny thing is, too, I think that there's a, and maybe this is a good thing to note while we're talking about this topic. This is a, um, a topic that often gets framed in a way that Asian societies have more rules or are more yeah. restrictive. And I think that what often gets missed, the sort of force for the trees thing, is that we, especially, I, I'm going to say probably especially Americans, it may apply to the entire Anglosphere, I don't know. Um, that we tend to regard our own culture as like so default mm. and so like just the natural way of human existence yeah. that we don't even notice how we're enculturated or we don't even notice our own rules sometimes. And it's interesting because um, as you, you know, when you live in a foreign country, especially like in our jobs where we, we have worked in the capacity of literally preparing people to speak English as a mm. second language, preparing people for interactions abroad. Um, like you said about language rules, it also makes you more aware of your own culture's rules. Yes, yeah. And I definitely, um, the more distance I get from American culture and the more I think about it from the perspective of someone not from it, someone from a place like Japan, um, I'm able to see things that are, that are not super obvious, um, that, you know, we, we regard as being pretty straightforward and obvious that are really not. Mm. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I, I agree with your, um, point there on, um, thinking that the, the Western world is some way, in some way, one whole thing and it's, it's the international, um, view of the world and it's the basis for all modern society well it's it's not so I, yeah as much as i'm talking about the rules of asian countries as well i don't yeah. want to overemphasize it i suppose yeah yeah well like an example and i'd be interesting to hear sorry i would be interested to hear anything about russia about this too but an example i'll give about like say mexico for example this is not something that's going to can come across through audio because it involves a gesture but um <laughs> in, Eng in english-speaking countries but we talked earlier before we got on the mic about how um Asian people beckon someone over and in, oh, yeah. in, in English speaking countries, your, your palm is up and you're, you're hooking with the fingers towards yourself. And in, in Asian countries, your palm is down. You're sort of sweeping yeah. inward with your fingers. And that, that's one example of something that's not language, but is part of the cultural l language, I guess. Right. Um, but so in, in Mexico, uh, when you're talking about the height of someone in English, we do the flat palm down, like, like almost like you're doing a salute with your hand and oh, okay. you just like he's this tall or the table's about this tall or whatever. In Mexico, there's three different gestures. And I believe it's the whole Spanish-speaking world, but I'm not 100% sure about that, where um, if it's a if it's an inanimate object, like a table or a piece of furniture or, or a bush, yeah, um, you use the same one as, the, as English speakers do, but that's only for inanimate objects. So something that... Obviously, Mexican people are aware that it's not the same in other countries, so they don't like freak out yeah. about it. But it's rude in Mexico to say like, "Oh, I think I think uh, my son's about this tall." It's, you're you're basically implying that he's an inanimate object, right? That he's not a, a human. Um, and so for humans, it's one finger like this, and it's typically not um, horizontal, but it's vertical. It's like pointing. You the tip oh, of your okay. finger is how tall they are. Yeah. And then I think also this is one I'm not I have not as much cause to use, but for like animals it's usually two fingers oh wow okay yeah. and that's one that's like you know i i think 
most Americans probably would make the default assumption like, oh, Japan is a very strict traditional country with all sorts of mysterious um, social protocols that are dangerous to violate and probably broadly to East Asia or, and, and maybe even parts of Southeast Asia, for example, like the tie not showing the bottom of the foot thing and not touching people's heads. Mm. Um, it, that tends to be the assumption of Asian societies, I think, from Western perspective. But if, if you mention Mexico, I think the average American's assumption is it's like, oh, anything goes there. Like, it's totally free and like, it, 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 which is actually not the case. I mean, the point I'm trying to make is that I don't even know that societies have more or less rules. They just have different rules. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and it's just uh, for, for me, I guess, on this journey through life, it's a matter of, uh, of I'm just, I, I'm really, I like to know things more than anything else. I'm, I'm basically a know-it-all, <laughs> um, as I've been told. But yeah, so I, whether it's news, whether it's languages, whether it's it's cultures and things, I just like to find out stuff. Yeah. I don't know if I necessarily do much with that information, but I'm just naturally nosy like that, I suppose. Yeah. So that that's actually really interesting. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought about that with the. Uh, I think I'm the same way, and gestures. it's it, information. If you think of it as like tools in a kit, yeah, right. You don't always know. I think. So people like you and I who maybe approach it from what's interesting first, not necessarily what's going to be useful or what, what, what I will profit from in the future. Yeah. I think that we tend to discover that you don't actually know. There, there's there's not a reliable way to predict. I mean, granted, there's certain things like probably if I learned computer science, I would make more money than I'm, than I'm making right now. There's yeah. certain aspects of, of learning or knowledge that you can approach it that way. And I, I, I meet people um, with personalities that are more that way, right? Is this important? Is this valuable information? If not, I don't care. Right. I don't want to yeah. learn it. But uh, yeah, you don't always know. Yeah. 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 Um, or I could jump. Yeah. Jump please. back. Um, it's interesting when you were talking before about um, when you were talking about pitch accent, and you were, and you were saying like people might might question you or otherwise about how you've pronounced a word. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience between Korea and Japan, even for their opportunity to use the language um was quite it's it's always been quite different so in in japan whenever i I used to travel here frequently from korea Mm -hmm. on breaks people would always and this is before i learned japanese people would come uh, when i interact with people they would speak japanese to me um Mm -hmm. without me knowing you know they would have to sort of bumble through and sort of and i'd speak english because i didn't know japanese at Mm -hmm. all then and then uh, but in Korea, the experience was always very different. People would uh, uh, speak to me, approach me in English, whether whether that was perfect English or fumbled sure. English or whatever. But the 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 mentality was really different. Um, it was like a pressure to to speak to use the English than you in Korea. Whereas in Japan, people were more comfortable um, using Japanese with me, which I actually respected. I enjoyed that. That was welcoming to to be spoken to in Japanese. Yeah, although I did not understand it. Yeah. But it was uh, coming from um, environment in Korea where I'd learned the language um, mm-hmm. over um, several years, formally and everything, and still people would come in and, and feel that they had to speak to me in English. That's very interesting to me, and um, it, it's maybe something we could talk more about because obviously I never lived in Korea. I've, mm-hmm. I've visited twice, but... Uh, oh, yes, I've heard about those uh, trips. Oh, really? No, not, nothing <laughs> remarkable happened. I, I literally one of them. I stayed in in Hongdae the entire time and just like walked around and window shopped and oh. and drank coffee. Um, the oh no, what I was going to say about that is the um, it's interesting that you describe Korea 
as more i don't know if you'd call it alienating but it's definitely otherizing right to be to be visually identified as foreigner and as, as a foreign foreigner and then be spoken to in what they just immediately assume must be your native language mm. which in this case it, mm. it is um even though you have the ability to speak mm. korean yes um i've never experienced that in korea oh i don't speak korean and i've never lived in korea mm. so obviously those are two huge differences in our experiences but i've experienced that a ton in japan oh. so it's very interesting to uh have you describe it about japan yeah. although i i will say i can see comparatively that there probably is a difference because in japan um early on when my japanese was not I wasn't able to produce it as quickly. It took a little bit more, like, I had kind of a running start into a conversation yep. before I could communally, uh, uh, confidently rattle, rattle stuff off. Um, now it's, it's easier compared to then to sort of muscle through when someone's insisting on speaking to me in English and we're already, like, we've, we've exchanged five sentences in Japanese. Yep. I've established that I can speak Japanese. I've, it's gotten faster to get through that where they'll, they'll settle in and they'll go, like, oh, okay, he speaks Japanese I'll, I'll stop yeah. trying to speak to him in English. But it's fascinating because it's literally the opposite for me. I've, I could probably count on one hand how many times it's happened to me in Japan. And really? it's, those have been in shops, for example, probably yeah. like in tourist places or something. Um, but it, it's a feature of life in Korea, to be yeah. honest. To be, to be fair, I, I, I mean, the number of language learners are quite different, right? Yeah. Um, those who learn Korean are very few relatively. And traditionally, at least in the last few decades, um, Jap Japanese was always the more um, more studied language. It's, it's changing now. Yeah, I mean, K-pop has changed yeah. that a lot. Yeah. Um, I think every, like since Gangnam Style became popular, and probably yeah. a bit before that, yeah. it's it really has exploded. And yeah. Japan before that had anime and video games. Right. And then also kind of samurai movies and, and martial arts culture were, were sort of niche things that some yeah. people were into. But Yeah, I... Um, yeah, like when I studied Korean the at Yonsei University, um, the the school was 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 large, and most of the students were actually Japanese. Um, when I went back um, to visit a few years ago um, to the to the language school itself, um, it was it had like doubled in size. It was huge, you know, um, and far more students from from all over the world were were, were learning Korean, but. Um, yeah, didn't change my experience, I suppose, of of everyone feeling the need for um, using English first, and I think that that certainly co colored my perception of of living there. I would say, mm. so the experiences of living in Korea versus living here mm. are are different. And I mean, you know me well; I'm quite a private person. I'm not the most um, Mm, social. <laughs> um, I don't think I'm completely antisocial, but I, I think um, you know I, I'm quite comfortable being by myself. And and, yeah. and and you don't need to get the the hit constantly. Of going no, out. no, I get that from the news. <laughs> Trump. <laughs> um, yeah. So it it's interesting because so my very first uh, year living in Japan, my first two years really. I was way out in the, in the countryside. I was in Gunma Prefecture mm. for my first year, and I was working. My, my very first job, I did not have any idea how someone found a job in a foreign country or started a life that way. So I literally just, in America, like Googled and went off hearsay and found a, a company that placed teachers as, as um, assistant language teachers in, in mm. Japanese public schools. And that was my first gig. And it was not the experience I wanted because I always wanted to end up in Osaka. And that was, I really if I could have designed my life, I would have probably just like come to Osaka for a couple of years 
It's interesting. Why did you pick uh, Osaka? Oh, that? my okay. my host family was in Osaka. When okay, I stayed okay. here as a, as a teenager, it was in Osaka. Um, and then I, in subsequent trips, I had discovered that the, the, the Japan that I loved was actually Osaka. Because mm. I, I came to Osaka three times before I ever visited anywhere else. Mm. And then when I went to Tokyo, I started... It wasn't completely conscious in the beginning, but I started to be aware of like, oh, this is not the same culture. It's a little different. Um, anyway... Uh, but Guma was very nice and people were very friendly there and it's countryside life is a bit slower mm. um, which I think lets people be a bit more open-minded and friendly and they were very welcoming and, and kind but at the same time um, they did not have a ton of experience meeting anyone who wasn't Japanese right. I mean anyone who wasn't Japanese and I'm including like other East Asian countries mm. in there but especially um, foreigners and you know the ALT job exists in pretty much every town in Japan so there always is like the resident one western person right yeah um yeah. <laughs> that they that they see and they're they're used to but you're you're known by everybody like yeah and it... um my my first experience uh in in korea i was straight out of university um and i scored a job in the countryside well what in korea is considered the countryside uh, i moved to a, a city called Cheongju, mm. and uh it's um yeah, i think it was like six hundred thousand people in New Zealand, that would be like that would make it the second biggest city, <laughs> but in 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 Korea, it's just you know it's just an everyday city. <laughs> um, but um, the majority of us foreigners who were teaching English in Hogwan um, and things were um, were we all lived on one street or one street over, but most of us lived on the same street in this huh. this new subdivision sort of what, neighborhood. What, even though we didn't necessarily teach way? there, no. Okay, but it was it was just where they put. Um, the 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 local Hagwon um, bosses or whatever decided to put people, <laughs> so we were just like oh huddled, yeah. So it was it was yeah it was an unusual first year. It was it made it made things quite interesting, yeah. So hmm. interesting, yeah. And I spent like that first year. I actually spent a lot of time. I kept journals of my experience, and I spent a lot of the rest of the time studying as well. Hmm. So before I went off to uh, language school there in in Seoul. I um, I actually was studying by myself first anyway. Yeah. So it was always I always felt a pressure to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So. In in my case with with Gunma, I think one thing that was very different was like the countryside people. It's a very time. That's a huge generalization <laughs> I'm making, making there. But I, the, I think the the experience of people in Gunma and the way it contributed to the way they reacted to me even just as a stranger on the street, um, was very different than Osaka. And it actually was a little bit, for me, disheartening, disappointing, because there was a lot of um, experiences. Sometimes were even positive. Yeah. People would be more interested in me because I was a foreigner and, like, want, you know, really want to talk to me and, like, take me around to, like, cool spots to drink or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's nice. There, there was no ill intent there. But I felt really super like an, like an alien. Like, I, oh, man, like... I cannot just be a person here. I cannot just blend in. And in, in Osaka, I had not felt that way. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Yeah. In, in yeah. Osaka, I mean, of, of course, uh, I, I was still a foreigner, right? And I was still foreign to people, but they're not as blown away by the fact yeah. that, that you're you're a white person. Right. From, which is, so that there's a, there's two there's two things going on there, and I think that it speaks to sort of the experience that Westerners expect when they come to Japan. Some people want to come and be like Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. just every have every experience be about the fact that they are not Japanese, but they are in Japan. Mm -hmm. That's like some people's whole theme of their experience yes. here is just like if 
if the conversation has not if the conversation's gone 15 minutes without acknowledging the fact that they are foreign they have to like reintroduce it somehow yeah to the conversation and i always really super didn't want that and uh i you know pe- there's people in in america that would that would sort of like america can be weird about racial identity and cultural identity but would, would sort of like remind me like you know they're never going to see you as japanese man and i'm like well i'm not japanese so that's accurate right mm-hmm. like, i'm not i'm not planning to like become what something else but i just wanted to be a person right like you know if your your racial or cultural identity is part of who you are as you walk around yeah. but you also just want to be a person yeah um and guma i really never felt able to do that so in guma I a lot more had the that experience of of people just kind of like speaking i mean literally sometimes if you're out at night and you're in an area where there's like people drinking literally from like across the street at a stoplight you'll have like some some slightly drunk salaryman just going hello Hello, like across the street at you, and it's just like, oh man. Maybe Kobe is a lot friendlier because I've I haven't had that in Kobe. I think Kobe. So in Kansai, among among Kansai natives, mm-hmm. there's a a huge um, division between the culture of say like yeah. Osaka, Kyoto, mm-hmm. Kobe, and Nara, and Osaka's like the wild, you know, crazy ones. I think Kobe have the reputation for being the most sophisticated and worldly yeah. and i think it's a point of pride for kobe people that they don't gawk at foreigners yeah. they don't care they yeah, I've, yeah i've felt nothing but welcomed there yeah. and when i say welcomed i mean to the point that you're making before like it, it wasn't a big deal that you're a foreigner either way yeah like oh fantastic or oh terrible it yeah. was just okay yep yeah. you know um yeah, so it's 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 been interesting and actually we could talk a little bit about where that comes from where i i feel that some of it comes from is that the, um, when Japan ended the period of Sakoku, which is when the, the country was closed for hundreds of years to, to anyone leaving or coming, I mean, like the punishment for leaving Japan was death mm-hmm. um, and and people were not allowed to, to visit, um, that Kobe was the first port when that was when that ended. Of course, there was Dejima and Nagasaki uh, during that time, which pe- but people couldn't actually come into Japan. There was like a little basically fortress island that they were allowed to, to trade within. But uh, yeah, Kobe was the. Mm. It was really the first open port and the first um, mansions of like diplomats and stuff from yeah. foreign countries that are in Kobe. Yeah, I, I went hiking uh, just uh, just on Saturday actually, and um, I, it's one of my favorite things to come back through through the through the mountains and then come down. And I sort of just find a random path usually yeah. and come back down to my nearest station or to my place. And uh, and I usually pass like a bunch of those really nice old yeah, mansions. Kitano, and yeah, there, Kitano, and yeah. even further over, um, actually in Mikage, yeah. there's some really big places. Really, yeah, just amazing. And it's very interesting because um, so my experience, as I told you, I'd been at Osaka many many times before I went anywhere else to Japan. And as close as Kobe is, Kobe was one of the last places that I visited, mm. uh, and it was really weird for me to get off the train and be like, oh, this is San Francisco. There's all the Victorian houses on hills and stuff. It just felt very weirdly like some, and also the fact that I think it's hilly and the ocean's right there. Right, it's a very narrow, narrowly placed sort of a city. Yeah. It's only what a few kilometers wide, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like stretched out. Yeah, yeah. Kobe's super interesting city. I mean, it's something uh, I think maybe this is not being like a geography podcast. We, we don't have to talk about it too long, but it's it is a city that um anyone if you've never visited it, it is just it's. A narrow, narrow strip of land crammed right between the ocean and mountains. It basically existed because I think at that point it was the best place to situate a port relative mm. to Osaka and Kyoto, Kyoto right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And it's a, actually a really good place uh, from Rokosan to uh, look out over 
Osaka. Yeah. Especially at night, but um, during the day it's amazing as well. And there's tons of hikes. The signage is terrible. <laughs> but as long as you know where the sea is, you can always find your way back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, the point being, I think that that's, it's a point of pride for yeah. like historically for, for Kobe people to not, you know, because it is a little bit, it, people who are from a society where there is a degree of multiculturalism and, and, and migration and stuff, we do tend to get, like we regard otherizing people too much as almost like provincial Right. If you're if you're like, oh, wow. Uh, uh, I mean, I've seen it in places in America that I want. I, I'm what I'm saying is not super nice. So I should not going to name the place that I was. But um, I've been to, to states in America, not not could, in the deep south either. But could you just mime it? So I can... <laughs> it's one of the square ones near the top near Canada. Oh, right. Um, uh, in the sort of the mid western Midwest there or, or eastern west, whatever you call it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nicely um, done. But I've been there, and at the time, I I was with family, and I and the girl I was dating at the time. This was a very, very long time ago. Went with me, and she was. Uh, That's a whole other podcast. There. Yeah, she she was a, a Korean American, and uh, I saw her have. And this is someone who was born in America. It wasn't even like she was mm. a foreigner. Uh, she I I saw her have the experience in that town that I have since had many times in Japan. Of, of like people, strangers on the street, just stopping and staring. And literally one shop that we went into, just we were just killing time. Um, uh, we want, walked in and poked around and didn't end up buying anything. But and there was like one shop staff at the counter who just had nothing to do and like chatted with everyone who came in. Um, even said to us, you're the first Asian person I've seen in real life. Like said that to her. Um, which, I'm, you know, in, if people... I think we kid ourselves that those, that, that doesn't exist anymore, but it mm. totally does. Mm. Um and yeah, and again, it didn't come from a place of malice. There was no, it was, they were just, they were fascinated by that thing, uh, that difference that, that you know, mm. they, they didn't have so much experience to. So um, I forgot exactly where I, where, where, <laughs> where I took the turn into that story there. But um, it's, it's funny because, I mean, you're coming from the States, whether you like it or not, everyone has an idea about um, Americans, whether it's true, yeah. whether it's yeah. accurate or not. Um, coming from New Zealand is a lot smaller. It's sort of distant. It's sometimes left off maps, <laughs> the globes famous, completely. The thing about New yeah. <laughs> um, so when I've traveled, yeah, I've, I've been to Scandinavia a few times, I've been to the Arctic more recently. Yeah. Um, people don't know how to act um, when, when you say you're from New Zealand, except to say, oh, okay, it's far away. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 cool. It's I, I like it. It means typically there's no sort of prejudgment or anything. Yeah, that, blank page is a great yeah. place to start. I think um, these days people mostly know um, Lord of the Rings or something like yeah. that. Um, yeah, and that, that's an interesting. It's interesting that it's Lord of the Rings because I think that that shows how a lot of that branding that ends up happening starts with like boards of tourism and mm -hmm. stuff making these decisions. Yeah. For better and for worse. So, since you bring that up, I think it's a good good segue. Are we can talk about Lord of the Rings, are we? Yes, yes. I want to. We're going to talk about Elvish for the next thirty minutes. Um, no, uh, Maori. Uh -huh. You you've told me not not a, a, a huge amount of things, but you've you've shared some stories and some tidbits with me before about the role of Maori in New Zealand schools and New Zealand society, mm -hmm. and uh, and also um, the sort of unique relationship that that the Maori people have with the post-colonial government or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it, the, the, the English speaking government of, uh, of New Zealand and how it's unique among, I think all of the relationships between these British colonial 
governments mm. and their native populations. Mm. Um, certainly very different than the Native Americans in the U.S. and uh, the the indigenous people in Australia as well, the Aboriginals. Um, I, I don't know if that's the term anymore. I, I'm not from that part of the world, so I don't I apologize. Yeah, I couldn't say for it. Australia if it's... Um, I, believe it's still aboriginal okay yeah. i just feel like every word that i that yeah. i learned in elementary school is no longer the word that i should be using and so i'm always yeah. hesitant to yeah. yeah yeah okay uh yeah so could you talk about that the, the role of the, the, the both the language and and how did it end up that way and okay so given that we're on a an audio podcast mm -hmm. i'll uh readily admit that uh i'm pakeha which means that i'm a new zealander of european descent mm -hmm. so I will openly say that some of the things I might say might not be completely accurate. Um, I appreciate that. And, That's fair. And I'm sure you, you, you'll get feedback from people <laughs> if it's completely wrong. Um, uh, where to begin? Um, yeah, so the, the relationship, the one that is taught to us uh, in history class and, and through schools is generally one where there was a history of um, poor race relations, but sort of since the 1970s, 80s, um, there's been a deliberate move by the government um, to improve those relations. And that includes respecting um, our founding document, which is the Treaty of Waitangi, Waitangi being the place where um, the treaty was signed, between uh, first signed between um, different Maori uh, iwi or tribes around the country sort of moved around the country, several different documents, but they're all called the treaty. Um, uh, yeah, so it was a neglected document from 1840, and it's a very, a very poorly written uh, legal document and um, of just sort of three clauses, basically. Mm. Um, but it gave guarantees to Māori in terms of citizenship, in terms of self-determination, and in terms of... Um, uh, treasures, taonga, so things that um, are important culturally and economically and socially to Māori. Um, I'm making this as a very simple sort of discussion here. Sure. But um, basically that was neglected for the longest time during the colonial era, era and up until... Neglected in what sense? Uh, it was basically ignored. Like okay. literally you can see the document and it's been written away by... Uh, sorry. You can literally see the document and it's been eaten away by rats over the years. Wow. So it's just sort of this hodgepodge piece of, of, of paper. However, the um, uh, so now it's the aim of every government, they, they say, is, is to respect and promote Māori rights and um, their treasures and, and self-determination to whatever degree that that, that government in power actually um, uh, believes at that time. Uh, generally, I think the New Zealand population is very respectful of it, very aware of it. We're aware of experiences in American history. We study it in school in terms of the um, Native American population, First Nations in Canada, mm. and so forth. Um, so we kind of, have, I guess, most New Zealanders feel like, to a certain degree, we have bragging rights. I don't know if that's completely fair. Um, but yeah, so part of the, the treasure is things to be... Um, preserved and promoted are things like language in there. So um, students in primary school learn just basic Māori and then there's the option to to go further with it into uh, intermediate high school and even specialist uh, universities now. Yeah, so it's a national language. 
Um, just as a quick aside, uh, mm-hmm. and I want to come back to that, uh, you you re- referred to the founding document of New Zealand, and I think that I want to just highlight for the, for the the benefit of probably American or British uh, listeners that this is the equivalent of what in the U.S. would be like the Constitution, yeah. or in the U.K. I was always taught in American schools that the Magna Carta was right. this massive, but I, apparently British people say that it, it's not, or it's not culturally regarded that way. Um, oh, okay. I don't I don't know what's true, but in any case, that. New Zealand does not have a constitution. Yeah. That is that is the document that founded the country. Right, we do not have one uh, codified formal document that's a constitution. So there's only a few countries like that, one being the UK, mm-hmm. uh, New Zealand, and Israel, um, okay. are the, the countries that don't have a, a single codified uh, constitution. Yeah. So that's as, as good as, as we get, basically, in New Zealand. Um, and the ambiguity is is rife throughout it, I would say throughout the treaty um but i think it's overall to the benefit of of new zealand society that that um it's open for open to interpretation yeah so i quite enjoy the fact that we have a native language that is increasingly becoming um respected within the country of course there are like any any colonial former colonial country there's a lot of opinions about that Mm -hmm. like one being for example well, it's a language that's only useful, if at all, in New Zealand. So why should my children learn it? Yeah. You know, of course, I think probably you and I probably have very different perspectives, uh, similar perspectives, but very different from, from that idea, right. right? That there is value in, in learning a language, no matter what it is, right. um, uh, for the sake of that language. Oh, and I, I, my guess would be, because this always conveniently seems to be the case, that the people who for some reason feel that it's not useful or valuable or coincidentally... English is their native language. Yeah, that right. that's something. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> notorious among uh, the English-speaking countries. Yeah. I think, right? Yep. There's a there's yeah. a massive like in inbuilt just baked in arrogance to to being a native English speaker that we right. we and and the irony, I guess, in in us having this conversation is that we have are or have been employed as English teachers yeah. in foreign countries to spread our language, if you like. I I have um, a lot of mixed feelings about yeah, that. If, yeah. I mean. We could really get into the sort of like sociopolitics and the mm. the, his, the historical like hegemonic role mm. of English. That uh, yeah, I I don't love that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, in New Zealand, so particularly since nineteen seventies and from the eighties, um, New Zealand identity, broadly speaking, has been more inclusive of a bicultural identity, identity before, um, actually. As a slight aside, when I was uh, doing postgraduate studies in New Zealand, um, I, uh, had to, I had to do some kind of research. And so I decided to research currency in New Zealand, the, the dollar, and before that it was a, a New Zealand pound, mm. so New Zealand dollar and New Zealand pound, um, and the designs of those dollars and coins um, and, and how they'd changed through time. And it was very interesting because you could literally map out... Um, the the empire <laughs> being being upfront and everything and, yeah. and and important in the in the imagery mm-hmm. of of the money of the currency and then that would change to something where it would it was just the queen in the 1960s mm-hmm. and it was very simple designs mm-hmm. and then slowly the and the inclusion of um maori motifs and and koru and different designs and things through to now where it's the the car the each banknote is very colorful, very different. Mm. It has Maori um, a language and, and traditional designs all over it. Like it's, it's shifted quite a lot. And in that research, actually, 
when they decided in the 1960s, so 1967, they switched over to the dollar uh, decimal. Um, they there was a, I went through the archives, the National Archives in Wellington, and there were actually records there of um, why they chose certain designs um, uh, in the past. Um, uh, so they would choose like Maori currency uh, coin, sorry. Uh, um, because uh, there was one of a, of, a, of a warrior and he was pointing his spear from from left to right. So he's pointing rightwards and it was to and it literally said to to show Maori the way. Mm. So they designed this coin of a lower denomination with the idea that they would, um, you know, help promote um, right. Maori. Right. And so there's a very different mentality from today where we're yeah. hopefully hopefully a little bit more respectful. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it inevitably, I think those first steps are often very fraught. I mean, I always think of the fact that America, um, while, while certain uh, languages certainly been, you know, I think we're all on the same page that certain language is not respectful. Mm-hmm. The, I think it, there's there's a frequent like pendulum shift or even different people um, seem to feel, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not speaking as, as a member of the group, but just, you know, having talked to people and heard people's views that like, is African-American the better term? Is black the better term? Mm-hmm. And right, that there's a certain... Um, tenuous as to some of that stuff. It's probably good that it's in flux. I think it's yeah. it's it makes people feel a bit uneasy and and um, uncomfortable talking about it. But I think it's good to work it out. Yeah, I think uh, what I'm about to say is probably a bit contentious. But just in my own sort of observations, um, in, when I was growing up as a kid in the in the eighties, and um, hearing the New Zealand as I said to you before, hearing New Zealand uh, accent on TV was relatively unusual except for a certain number of programs yeah um that's obviously changed quite a lot now and things um but one one aspect that has changed at least in my mind and i'm 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 welcome to people saying i might be wrong but um that the pronunciation of maori in english maori words or the maori words in uh, used in english um has has increased which i think is great um uh, but the pronunciation as well has also altered. So in the past, if there were uh, a Maori word, so even the word Maori before, um, perhaps my grandparents, mm-hmm. for example, and <laughs> might offend some people, but um, might say something like Mary. Okay. So something like, like yeah. that. Yeah. And, and, that, and you might still hear that in the very older generations. I'm not quite sure, but um, now it's, a, you, I'm very aware of how I should speak yeah. when it comes to Maori words. And that I can utilize that vocabulary um, as well. You, it, the the, the it's little a, vocabulary that I do know, to be honest, I, okay. I, I don't speak the language um, in any great extent. So is that, um, do people f- cringe or wince when they hear Maori? Oh, today, yes, yes I think okay. so. Yeah, unless, it's hard to say, but I wouldn't be surprised if the region I'm from, uh, in the in the deep south of New Zealand, um, sort of in the more Pākehā, so the white or European New Zealand um, dominant areas, perhaps maybe a little bit more traditional. I mean, okay. it might be changing. I haven't lived in New Zealand for um, a, a number of years now. That's very interesting, and it goes back to what I was saying before about code switching versus mm. speaking a quote. I hate this term, but like pure version of a language mm. is I, I, I very consciously, when I'm speaking English, don't say karaoke mm. or karate. I say like karaoke and karate, <laughs> yeah. like because I'm speaking English and yeah. those are words which have become English yes, to yeah, an extent. Yeah. And when I'm speaking Japanese, of course, I pronounce them the Japanese way. But um, 
when it becomes a, an issue like that, yeah. um, I think that's a very different choice. Right. Make. It's yeah. um, because it, it can reveal, uh, potentially reveal your political beliefs yeah. or... Um, it's a shibboleth, your, right? Yeah. Your, your um, affiliations with a particular movement, if any, and however people might feel about that. Um, I, for me, it's, I feel it's just being a responsible citizen of, of the country, I guess. And, and, um, yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think that sometimes the idea of political correctness, quote unquote, is, um, it gets blown up into a bigger concept than it really is. I think it really just comes down to like, if it's, if it's no trouble to not, hurt somebody mm, mm. why would you choose to yeah. ignore that why yeah. would you, yeah so yeah, yeah.